Good morning, everyone. I'm Shelley Wrench, along with Dr. Nash Gabriel, uh, for another episode of Good Medicine is Cheaper Medicine, where we discover or discuss uh, medical economics and many other things in healthcare. Today, um, I have a question um, about end of life decisions and discussions with patients. I'm not, you know, in the room when you're having those discussions. I do see some things on the outside of the exam room, but I want to know from you how, number one, when do you make that decision to have that discussion? And number two, how do you, how do you get everything in place and, and help the patient get through that end of life? And the family, of course. Um, first of all, shall I, I, I don't make the decisions. It's patients make decisions. But patients, I only, I only mm, follow patients' wishes when I'm convinced that they know about their disease what I know. I am not an advocate of just taking people making decisions without knowledge. That's dangerous. So, when it comes to discussing the the end of the road, the path that 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 the rough path that some cancer patients or many cancer patients take, and when I see clear in my eyes that we are coming to the to the edge of the cliff, um, that's the time when I sit down and have serious talk. But from the time of diagnosis, it's important that we inform and prepare patients for that eventuality. So when I see a patient with, let's say, lung cancer, small cell, non-small cell, with stage 4 disease, I'll be dishonest if I don't tell them from day one that this is going to be limiting the longevity. And of course, immediately I ask the question, how long? Uh, it's amazing, <clears throat> of course, how uh, the public, they think that we have the crystal ball not knowing that there's some powers over us who decide how long we live, and there are some other things that can kill people besides cancer. But we have enough statistics, usually to vaguely tell patients, listen, if you have pancreatic cancer, statistically, you have nine, ten months to live. But I've seen pancreatic cancer patients, stage four, who lived five, six years, and I have some, seen some who lived five to six hours. So, the, the, the process and preparing patients and the family to that eventuality starts from day one. But it's also important to be, there's a lot of discussion, um, before I say it's important to be, there's a lot of discussion or has been a lot of discussion about sh- how brutal should we be with patients and the family about the prognosis. Brutal or honest? Uh, some people called it brutal, but you called it honest. I agree with you. It's honest. Some people think that we should keep hope. Um, and, and that can intermingle with keeping hope almost like misleading or lying, right? Right. And I'm, I'm thinking of even some of the patients who come and the family says, don't even tell this, my, my mom, she has cancer. Yeah, usually these are the ethnic people, the immigrants. Yeah. Um, oh, can, can I say that on the radio? Because this is, this is I'm profiling. PC, I'm not the PC generally, one. generally, people of uh, I tell you what I have studied this and I love profiling because it it teaches me a lot about how to handle a group. Give you example: 
we have a lot of Iraqi Christians who come from Detroit to be treated by us, right? Right. Because they all grew my, my family, they know my family and so on. And it is amazing how much uh, wishful denial there is, patients and families. You see that, right? Yes. Um, it is really amazing um, that they don't want the word cancer mentioned. Uh, it's funny that the patient will tell me, please don't tell my mother I have cancer. And the mother will tell me, please don't tell the patient she has cancer. And until I get them together, I say, okay, guys, can you talk to each other? She knows and he knows. Don't, be, don't, don't think that the other <laughs> side is stupid. The other ethnic group would that be would be, um, I think, first generation Italians, especially southern Italy, uh, Greeks, and the Balkans. Somehow, about the Middle East and Eastern Europe, there is this uh, different different concepts. But again, if you look at these cultures, when there is death, they scream and they cry, and the mourning is like way loud. When you look at the Northern Europeans. It's more somber, more quiet. I, mean, I was always, I was always um, almost fascinated when I, when, when, when I was a kid, when I saw on TV Jackie Kennedy during the funeral of her beloved husband, right? Right. I mean, not only was her husband, he was a good-looking young man, and he was the president of the United States. He had a lot of future in front of him, and he was killed so with cruelty, and, and she was beside him. In fact, her brain was in, his brain was in, in her hands. And yet she was well composed. Oh, the Middle East people? Absolutely not. <laughs> <They'll> <laughs> I can be, only imagine. They'll, they'll be scared. So, the bottom line is, we have to take that into, into consideration. Um, back to the, to the subject, when, when we discuss with patients, I think it's important that for me to tell, the, to tell the patient exactly the way it is. And believe it or not, before I talk to patients, if I have a little doubt that I might be dealing with one of those who don't want to know, which is very rare, except those ethnic groups. I always ask the patient, what kind of person are you? Uh, do you want to know everything? And if they ever say, well, I immediately stop there. Then I made up my mind, this is the person who really doesn't want to face it, and that is where the line between truthfulness and brutality is drawn Gotcha. If the patient says, uh, you know, doc, just give it to me the way it is, to me, that's it. And I tell them exactly the statistics. And when there are, when people talk about hope, of course we all have hope. Do we have hope that we will be eternal? No. Do we think that we will all die? We will all die. And none of us will live like Noah 900 years, if that's true, of course. <laughs> so, the hope is, you adjust like I'm 65. My hope is I live to the age of 100. 110. Give and take. You're laughing. If, God forbid, I get a serious illness that I know it's not compatible with 50 years or 30 years or 10 years, then immediately I adjust my expectation, which is also hope, that I will live to the maximum, call it allowed, <laughs> in that patient category. And that's where my role with the patient is when I explain to them the hope. How do you achieve that hope? Or how do you, how do you achieve that new bar? We lower the bar because of the limitation on survival because of the disease. And how do you achieve that? That's when immediately treatment plan comes into play. 
And when you talk about clinical plan, then you start talking about the side effects because, again, that's the time. If I tell a patient, you know what, if you have cancer of the pancreas, the average you live is about nine months. That's average. And we know from studies, if we give you chemo, you will live maybe 11 months. Is it really worth it to live another two months? Average, average, average. And explain to the side effects. And some people say, you know what? Not really. Look at the Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, yeah. Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs. Yeah. Steve Jobs was Jobs too. He, uh, he actually refused to be treated. Although I think he had neuroendocrine cancer of the pancreas, but he refused treatment because he thought, probably, that it wasn't worth it to go through all the, all the hassle to live another few months or one year, one year extra. That's my job. Once a patient decides that I don't want to go through all this, then you should explain to them, I explain to them, the, 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 the plan, what do we do from here? And of course the plan is always is, number one, keep comfortable. Number two, take advantage of every single minute left out of your life. Some people will be cruel by saying, you know what, I think you should go on vacation to, the, to, to, the, to Hawaii, wherever. Yeah, you, know, you might say that, but in, in a very, very polite way. But to me, when a patient knows everything, they will make up their mind how to spend the last few weeks, months, or years of their life. So is that when you introduce and have the discussion about who is the power of attorney, um, how they want the, the advanced care directive, how do right. they... So how does, like, the power of attorney, how does that uh, come into Shelley, play? It's, it's very complicated, as you know, but if we actually understand the whole process, if we actually want to do the best to the patient and their families, it can be done. So when a patient, um, if a patient has a serious illness, like cancer, they need to be told about the seriousness because they might have a business and they don't want to burden their loved ones with the complexity of that business after they die. So it's important, um, and you know, in America we have the term, get your life in order, meaning your whatever, uh, your retired money, your whatever you want to do. Um, it's also at that time where, or even before that, that you encourage patients, maybe you should have POA, both medical and um, what do you call the other Financial. One? Financial. Uh, I also encourage people to have <coughs> the two separate from each other. That makes sense. Yes. Personally, I have two separate ones, right? Right. Just to make sure. Um, what is confusing to the public is that once you sign the papers for the power of attorney, usually in the presence of a lawyer, right? Or a judge. No, it's a lawyer, I think. Some people have the misconception and the mistaken idea that you have surrendered all your rights to the power of attorney. Oh, yeah. And even, even as soon as they bring in the papers and say, I'm the daughter you know, of the patient will come in, here I'm POA now, so I make all the decisions. I've seen that multiple times. Right. Uh, actually, professionally, exactly, you're right. Professionally, legally, morally, ethically, whatever you call it, as long as the patient is in good state of mind, in our judgment, he or she is the boss. And it is our job to resist the temptation of the POA to do things that are a little bit offline. Now, that can create problems with the, with the POA and the family members. True. 
can create real problems. And we have seen that happen over and over. Um, I try to explain to the families as much as possible and to the patients. The, the, the challenge I face with this sometimes is cancer patients, when they know that they are they're kind of limited weeks or months left, not only their body is weakened, so is their spirit. And when your spirit is broken, you let's like your body, you start leaning on a wall or a ladder or a cane or a walker. And that's your loved ones. You lean on them. Um, although, a, a lot of patients, although they, they have kept their wits, they still think clearly. They still know everything around them. When you ask them some simple questions, they always say, yeah, discuss that with the kids or with the wife or whatever. They start giving up. It's, it's, it's giving up on life and maybe giving up even on their individual liberty and independence. That's why I said cancer doesn't, in some people, doesn't only weaken their muscles and bones. It does weaken the spirit because of the despair. And that weakening changes. I have seen, oh my gosh, one of the good examples of this was a very, very astute lady who was an attorney, very young. And I tell you what, her cousins, a bunch of them in town, they told me she was the most... Um, the word vicious is not good because she was an awesome lady, but she was very strong, very opinionated. Aggressive. Uh, very, I mean, she had, I, in fact, first time I saw her, she looked at me, she said, they say you're smart. What's your IQ? I said, I don't know. She said, mine is 145. I bet you yours is only 120. Said, That's a way to start a relationship <laughs> with a physician, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said, just let you know that. And I tell you what, she was brilliant. Once I told her about the options of the her stage four cancer, and she was beautiful. Once I told her about the options, she gave up. And after a few days, I asked her, "Why do you give up?" I don't want to go into the details, although she's deceased. But I was amazed by she actually even have somebody who wasn't her best advocate to be her POA. Yes, that was the extreme breaking of a spirit of a cancer patient I have seen. That was 20 years ago, by the way. And I'll never forget it. She was a very, very unique, loving, lovely, intelligent, smart person. Which brings another question that I have for you about hospice and the decision as to when to put patients on hospice. And the reason I'm thinking about this is because as you know, we're part of the um, Medicare Oncology Care Model, and they actually, one of their measurements is how long does the patient survive after being put on hospice, and you're penalized if they're not on very long. So they really want you as a physician to push people into hospice quicker than I think that maybe the patient and you have decided. Can I be political in this? Absolutely. I'm always political in everything, right? The, the oncology care model wasn't born this year. There was a different president and different administration in the White House. That was two years ago, right? Well, it was born three years ago, but it started two years three ago. Three years ago. And the idea of those people was, and I think that's changing, the idea of those people was um, find ways to accelerate the demise of patients. 
We always heard that, oh, 60% of the healthcare costs is spent on the last 60 days of life, so <clears throat> why do we even spend money on those 60 days of life? Why don't we just let people go, forgetting that we only know there were 60 days after people died? Well, I totally get it. You shouldn't be giving chemotherapy to a patient who death is imminent within days. I totally get that. But I just wondered and, if... The and, and very, 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 very few people would do that. Yeah. But at the same time, we see... And you ask a very good question, Shelley, about, about the... To me, about the hospice. To me, no one, no one should ever discuss the option of hospice and what it does and what the survival is except the oncologist. Unfortunately... I happen to be in the minority, not by default, because hospice people, they have their own marketing team, because it's a business, and if they're offended, I don't care, because it is a business. Even the non-profit ones are actually more vicious in their businesses than the for-profit ones. So, let's get that straight. They, they find every single method, especially when the patient is in the hospital, to go and talk to them in, in, in a way that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know how I am. I tell the patient exactly the way it is. If you do this, you get to expect this. And they sometimes, and of course they know that I'm upset when they do that because it is a sin to me. It's a heresy for anyone to give an opinion without being fully knowledgeable of that. Of, that of, the, of the entire case. And I remember a patient uh, a few years back, probably about 10 years ago, uh, one of your patients, that I believe it was the priest of the hospital. Wasn't it the, the preacher in the hospital, the priest of the hospital that came and actually had that discussion with the patient and said, oh, you should be on hospice. You know what, Shelley, we do have time to go through that. She was a 23-year-old girl. She has Hodgkin's disease. She had Hodgkin's disease. And Hodgkin's disease for the audience, we cured 90% of the meaning. Usually disease of young kids, about one-third of them are kids in their 20s. So you take 100 cases of Hodgkin's disease. After 10 years, 90 of the 100 are still alive without any disease. Most of them married and have kids. So, let's make that clear. Hodgkin's disease is not leukemia, it's not lung cancer, whatever. So this girl, and, and the way we treat this disease with, is with kind of aggressive chemo that makes people sick and blood count drops and so on. So this girl got sick. Blood count drop, almost zero. Fever. I know how to handle that. Put her in the hospital, right? Start IV antibiotics, growth factor, whatever. Two days later, I go there, and she looked at me, she said, why did you lie to me? That's right. I remember that. And you know how painful that is. And the last thing I want is a patient tell me I lied to them. I said, how did I lie to you? She said, you told me that you can cure my disease, and everybody's telling me now I should sign up for hospice and go home and die. I said, how on earth? I said, yeah, I can cure you, believe me. In fact, you, you wanted to have more babies. We're working on that. By protecting your ovaries, and you'll have more babies. She said, now I'm confused. I said, who was it who told you? She said, the chaplain. I knew who it was. And his nurse. The hospice nurse. Right. Um, I don't think they enjoyed what I told them. I don't think they were happy with what I told them. But it was clear to them that from now on, if I hear they ever, ever talk to any of my patients that I might do something that they might not like, like take legal action or even report them to authorities, whatever it was. Needless to say, that girl, 
Uh, she doesn't come and see us. In, oh, she sees she sees me once a year. Once a year, yes. She had two babies after we cured her disease, and she's working you know where. Yes. Every time we're flying, we see her somewhere. Yes, we give do. us a hi, give us a hug. This is where a chaplain. How on earth a chaplain? When I told him, I said, "Do you realize that this girl has curable disease? Well, but she has cancer, right?" You know, that was a time when I almost felt like this guy needed to be punched. I mean, you're talking about 21 years old girl, a mother of two, by the way, and a husband, and you tell her, let's go home and die, when I say, no, I can't cure her. And I didn't say, this is not like an, uh, an, an, uh, an anecdotal case. This is 90% of the time we cure these people. You have science behind your... your Actually, I've been lucky. Stats. I have not lost a single patient with Hodgkin's disease, uh, except one. There was one. He was an older gentleman. So, this is where... We have to be careful. And the patient family has to be careful. I always say, like you go down to the hospital, there's a hospitalist. As soon as they look at the history, there's cancer. Okay, how about hospice? Palliative care. What the hell does that mean? I still don't know what palliative care means. You know, there's so many different things now in the hospice realm of this is uh, a palliative hospice stay. This is whatever. And, I mean, it's so confusing. And I think that they're just creating more situations that they can have people in the hospice world, because that's where they do get their money, whether it's non-profit or profit. And I tell you what, and again, not to be political, because I have to be political, Obama wasn't very helpful in this administration because there was a philosophy there that um, let people die quickly, although actually the Democrats are the ones who showed the picture of uh, the old lady being fallen from a cliff being pushed by, uh, from the cliff by poor Ryan, who's a Republican. Actually, it's exact opposite. Again, I hate to be political or endorse one or the other. It's very, very exact opposite. And the OCM program that we're working on now, same thing. They are saying, if you send patients to hospice quickly, and they die quickly, you you, are incentivized. That, that actually we will get paid more. And you know what? Not on my dead body. They can create any program they want. My patients are still my boss. And they are the only thing I care about when, when, when I'm practicing medicine. And for the government to interfere like this, yeah, I realize the government is spending money on Medicare, but guess what? That's my money too. And it is the money of those patients we take care of. They pay taxes. Some of them serve the military. Some of them actually save our republic. And the last thing I want to do is comply with the government who is creating some rules, incentivizing me. It's absurd that I will make more money if my patients will die sooner. Absolutely not. And the public need to know that the government, thank God, the new Medicare system or new Medicare administration, they have questions about this whole program. They, they know it's kind of twisted program. Yeah, and, and, you know, when I was down in Baltimore last year with the, the OCM leadership, there's only a couple of us that were down there. And basically at that time, it was right after the new president came into power. And everybody was kind of a little bit concerned and everything. And, and they said, well, we've just got too much money involved in this program that we really can't take it away. They didn't want to backtrack and, and lose all the dollars that they just, and, and all the, 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 the people that work behind the scenes to get that in place. They, just, and, they couldn't discredit. And, and you know, Shirley, honestly, I do understand that, I understand that, that, that the government wants to cut cost, but there are so many different ways of containing cost without actually compromising people's lives. Look at the, the excessive hospitalization, excessive emergency room visits, the over-testing. Look what they're doing. 
the, the, the government in the last four years, again under President Obama, they increased the profits for hospitals who own physicians. Increased them significantly. Right? right. They also increased the payment to the hospitals. And when we ask even insurance companies and even Medicare, why do you do this? Well, because hospitals are inefficient, so we have to subsidize their inefficiency. This is where we're going wrong. How, and what happened after that? Physicians were incentivized now to sell out to the hospital because they get paid more. So if I make now $200,000, the hospital can tell me, you know what? We'll hire for three hundred. You don't have to deal with headache. You don't have to deal with administration. And that's what's happening. And when you look, the cost of care is higher in the hospital. We just had things exactly backwards. So basically, what you're saying is definitely you are not going to change your behavior with your patients on end-of-life issues, even though it's now tied to your pocketbook. That's the last thing I want to do, exactly. unless I want to go into history, unless I want to die a miserable person who has cheated on his conscience to make a few more bucks. Absolutely not. I don't think there is many physicians who will, who will do that. This is, this is, it's not only the oath that we take. It is something that, it's our personality, our genetic makeup that, that made us decide to go and take this profession. And that profession is basically to serve the sick. And for the government to come and tell me, eh, abandon them because we might make a few bucks, I tell them, go to hell. So I guess I understand, too, what you're saying is for end-of-life discussions to be had with patients, it needs to be done by the person, the physician who's actually treating him, meaning the oncology, the oncologist and cancer patients, right. not discussed by their family doctor or right. the chaplain in the right. hospital or anybody like that. Um, yeah, actually, you know, there's something else I need to mention very, very quickly. My problem also I face is when we make patients DNR do not resuscitate, what that means, and usually that's done by the POA or the patient. There's one challenge with that, and that is the DNR in that case means if the patient starts getting real bad from the disease, there's no sense in doing dialysis and intubation. But I always tell patients when they sign those papers, how about if we are putting a central line and we create pneumothorax that require little surgery that will put you under anesthesia? Oh, no, 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 no. You have to do that. Really? How about if you get involved in a car accident? So those are the things that, as a physician, need to be explained to the patient explicitly rather than sign these papers and give us all the rights to do whatever we want with your health. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Good Medicine is Cheaper Medicine. Um, wanted to take a, a minute and talk about uh, the new Liberty Pharmacy located. Our Liberty Pharmacy. It should be. Love our that place. Yeah, um, it's located um, within the walls of the cancer center in the in the same building at 4875 Higby Avenue. It is a different type of pharmacy, meaning that it's not your your typical retail pharmacy. Anybody can get their medications there. Yes, but we actually find financial assistance when there's. But in addition. We find financial assistance so that the idea is we want to minimize the burden of cost to patients. Correct. And the, we, we are, we're realizing that the, the retail, the big, big chains are not really doing that. No, not at all. Well, um, people can call and uh, the Liberty Pharmacy number is 330-490-9034. And we will help them the way we can, the best way we can. Of course. 
Always. Always. Thank you again.